Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Dr. Amber Baker. So welcome onto the show, Amber. Hi. So before we go... So before we delve into today's episode, can you talk about why you got into psychology in the first place? Well, let's see. I was actually floating around, not sure exactly what I wanted to do for a while. Um, I took classes uh, in business and just everything under the sun. And finally, I took my first abnormal psych class. And I remember that I had the most charismatic professor and he, he did forensic work. He was teaching. He, was, um, he had a private practice, and he just shared the most fascinating case studies and different things. And I remember I just kind of talked to him after class one day, and I said, how do I become you? I love what you're doing with studying people and helping people and understanding the human mind because I think there's so many incredible things out there in the world, and to study the minds that make those things would be the greatest honor, truly. And then so... <laughs> 11 years later, I became a psychologist, but it was a long journey to go for graduate school. That's a whole nother topic I could share if you'd like, but it was quite a journey for me, but I just felt so excited and couldn't wait to keep reading about it. And I knew when I sent a fan email to my neuropsych uh, textbook author (laughs) that that was it. Like, this is definitely where I'm supposed to be, that I love that book that he wrote. So yeah. And plus moving around a lot as a kid, I think wondering about the human mind and how to get along with and understand people also probably set the stage. And why did you coin it abnormal though? Well, that was an abnormal psych class. So that's what the course title was. Um, And so they would talk about, you know, and that's a good question because there probably is no such thing as normal. That was what they call that class where they do talk about different disorders. Um, But it's funny because I always talk about things and I use a lot of metaphors and sayings, but with my clients, you know, perfect is boring. There's no such thing as normal. But how I think that's also a really good point because there's still a lot of awareness about mental health issues and we're talking about it more. But if you think about that, that's to educate undergrad students with their first exposure to psychology and they are calling it abnormal. So, you know, there's potentially you can see how stigma is created in a lot of different areas and is perpetuated, especially with the way we use our language. Oh, it's a difficult one in terms of, what we term normal but I think within my industry it's more that notion towards perfection and I get horrified with it it's like well there's no such thing as that and if there is from a sporting connotation you're striving for perfection but the goalposts always move so you're always trying to better yourself so that's as close as I could ever see you getting towards perfection yeah and I think you bring up such a good point because in our minds, I think we use, you know, as I talked about in that episode I just released this week on perfection, how we use it as protection, I think, as armor, because if we can make it over 100%, like every point above 100% feels like, okay, now we're really safe. Look at what I can do. Look at this wow factor in general. But like you're saying with sports, there's so much involved with hitting or missing the marks. I mean, there's clear rules, there's clear objectives. So to try and be perfect, there's really clear and high standards, I think. So I, I believe perfectionism, especially with athletes, could potentially be a real issue that can thwart 
that energy and excitement of moving forward, it becomes, you can become focused on just hitting that number and lose the, the love of the game and the trust in ourselves sometimes. I think with me, it went to answer your question there, Amber, but I think for me, it's kind of two directions that I would go down. I think as a youngster, I was more ego driven. So I would mm-hmm. rather beat the person than better myself. Whereas if I got older, okay, you can, you're not going to beat your best times all the time. And as you progress up the, the ladder, that's going to become less and less likely. So I think, I think I've been able to balance the two. So it's, 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 it's probably, well, the ego way of being driven is probably less from the, well, not less from the truth, but further away from perfection as you can get because you're never trying to bet yourself. You're trying to beat other people. So at times you don't have to try your best because mm. those individuals might not be as good as you on paper. Well, they might, on paper they're level, but they could have not had as good a preseason as you. So you'll maybe be further along than them. So by beating them, you're not really you're not really pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. Yeah, it's almost like what you're saying, the competitor sets the bar. Whereas I think when it comes from within, we can have the bar be something that is astronomical and impossible to reach. So it sounds like that was clear cut and sometimes easier for you than what you knew you were capable of if you really pushed yourself to beat your own times or come you know, meet your own goals. Well, I think looking back on it now, I say it's been very, very lazy. It's a very lazy <laughs> attitude because, well, I think you see it when you play lesser teams from a, a team perspective, you always go down to their level. Whereas if you're playing somebody that's better, better than you, you rise to that challenge. So it's like, well, shouldn't you be able to be at an even keel and be somewhere in between that no matter who you play because you as the individual is not going to change mm-hmm. yeah, I think knowing ourselves is really important and I imagine with you getting so much feedback from coaches and playing different people that you got used to potentially getting to know how they play and and what their ability is it's a whole interesting game it's not just you and yourself there's it's a whole network you're in Oh, you try and push buttons as well. I meant <laughs> yeah. sports. It's that if you can push somebody's buttons and get them off their game, be it whatever, what you call it, dirty tactics or whatever. It's, but it's, at the end of the day, it's mind games. If I can rattle you and I know it's working, I'm, I'm going to do that all day. <laughs> yeah, it's like... Yeah, I think so. Knowing yourself and what can what people can do to rattle you, that's an interesting thing. When I have you on my podcast, I'd love to also hear more about that because that's such an interesting thing for the mind frame. You know, you know how to rattle others, but when people get into your head and start to rattle you. Doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I want to know. How did you protect yourself from that? Well, it doesn't. It, I, I can see people have tried. It's like, nah. I've got to be really, really in a bad, well, not in a bad place, but not in a good frame of mind for you to get under my skin. It's like, you needn't, you needn't bother. It's not going to work. It's like, you mm. can do whatever you like. I'm not going to bite. Wow. That's I think maybe from a tactical perspective, you see people trying, oh, I don't know, use fancy moves. It's like, I'm not going to go anywhere. You're, you're just moving your body. 
you're not going in. You're not going in a full movement. I'm not moving. Don't need to move. Mm-hmm. Do something else. But I think it's that. That's oh, probably loads and loads of experience from the sporting side. It's like, well, if you're not actually got any intent to do anything, I don't need to do it. I don't need to move. Don't need to waste energy. But I think that comes with obviously knowledge and experience and you go from there and it's obviously it's a probably to a certain extent mental calculations you're using well a little bit of what you've learned at school with maths and all sorts and, and psychology it's like well you've got no intent you could do this 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 I'm going to put you where I want to and you've got a little bit less to utilize and go from there whereas I think the younger generation is more probably I see from a coaching perspective, be it with my team and then also helping out at the, the high school I'm at. When do we coach? Oh, they're practicing yesterday with the high school and getting them to do drills and, and, and utilize and kind of not perfect it, but kind of see what they're doing right and what's doing wrong. And obviously put a punishment when they do something wrong. So I think one one of the kids I think had to do for forty push ups, but oh, I think he I think well hopefully he'll learn from it. It's like, well, that is wrong. Don't do it again. Or or kind of see, well, this is plan A. Doesn't work. There is I can see it from I can see it behind you from coaching it. Mm-hmm. I can see the other the other plan and which is the better uh, outcome or result from that perspective. But I can see it. But I can see the game a little bit quicker. So it's trying to instill some of that to them, and then obviously they can utilize that in games, and they can think that much quicker and kind of see <sighs> something happen before it does, which is a skill in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to anticipate what's going to happen. It sounds like you, I mean, it's just so compelling hearing you talk about how you just say, nope, it's not going to happen. You just have this confidence. You just know in yourself, like, this is what I'm putting my mind to and, you know, good luck, (laughs) but it's just not going to happen. So I think it's, yeah, there's experience, but also internalizing that experience in a way where we can own it with really knowing ourselves and trusting in ourselves that we're able to do whatever it is that you set your mind out to. That's a huge leap that can be so hard for so many of us. Well, I think it's, I think I spoke to what, what was one of my lecturers or early on in my show uh, about um, athlete wellbeing, but we looked upon it as uh, how does an athlete view themselves where he kind of put, and I didn't actually think of this. He said, well, how do you perceive yourself? And he said, well, obviously you're an athlete, you're a student, uh, you've got a disability. And what was the other? It's like four. What was the four? I can't remember what the fourth one it escapes me. But it's like, yeah, you're right. That's, that is me as an individual. So there's nothing. I don't have that problem like we discussed off air, become, becoming a retired athlete. Well, that doesn't, def- me as an athlete doesn't define me because I've done all those other, I've got all those other things that make me up as a person so I just go from one to the other quite easily when it suits. And so after I talk with clients about it, we we do discuss how interesting it is how we can kind of 
start to really see ourselves as a particular label or role and that can become our identity. Um, and I think mindfulness is really interesting in how it kind of has a step back and notice the part of us noticing how we feel and who we think we are, or who we are in these different roles, you know, that, that continuity from every age we've ever been, every role we're in. Um, it's just kind of fascinating to think about the person behind all of that. I think, I think it's difficult well, in terms of when you say roles, it's a difficult one because if I look at it from maybe my perspective and say the coaching and the teaching was, well, it's one in its, one in its own because it's the same thing really. You're trying to teach people new skills from a coaching perspective, but teaching a school, you're trying to progress their learning. So it's in, in essence, it's probably the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and it's interesting if you think about, is it us showing up as ourselves with the knowledge we have in each of these roles? Or are we jumping into trying to kind of be these roles? And so the more that we, like I remember as a psychologist, I felt imposter syndrome and I used to try and walk in and be Dr. Baker. <laughs> and so, you know, instead of being myself with the training I had, and still bringing me, you know, I think we can kind of, I know that when I was insecure, I used to hide behind, I am just this role, just see this, see me as Dr. Baker. And, and the more I've grown in knowing myself and, and working on confidence, I can kind of just show up as me with hopefully the, all the qualifications I need to do that and the knowledge to really help them. So it's been an interesting shift, I think, as we move forward in, in knowing ourselves and in what's important to us with career and journeys and what roles we do choose for our life you know we can transform within them as they kind of evolve and we evolve with them I think I've got a similar story to that but I don't I wouldn't put it down to confidence in high school it might because um, well you don't know this either but I've obviously got uh well my father's side of family American but what I did in I think elementary and High school is obviously, but well, you could coin it an accent, but people would probably say, if they listen to me over here, they would say, well, you don't have a local accent. And I was, I think if I listened to it on voicemail on the phone, a little bit less now, but a few years ago, it's, it's kind of like a hybrid, one. it's like a mixture. But I would, if I come, come, kind of come back to my point, in high school, you could say, I was putting a facade on because that's not how I speak at home. That's how I speak. I would speak with the kids with an American accent, but we'd grown up with a British one. So it's like, well, that's not normal. And it <laughs> until, what would it have been? I think my junior or senior high school, that I was like, well, let's just go ahead and speak like me. And, and some of the kids is like, where's this accent come from? This is how I speak normally. <laughs> Wow. Yes. <laughs> so I think that's kind of partly why I started Go Friend Yourself, because I think we do really, you know, we can put on that mask of who we think we need to present as, how we need to talk, what we need to look like, how we need to act, what kind of things that we feel pressure to present with. And, you know, I even have people call me all the time saying, you know, I don't want to just be like my Facebook profile. Like I'm scared to show the real me. It's like this life commercial we all put up. And, you know, I think that um, it can be scary. We feel so vulnerable and naked when we're not wearing this mask of whatever we think we're supposed to present. That truly was partly 
you know, part of the impetus for me going forward with Girlfriend Yourself to help people really own who they are and, and know that that's something amazing no one else can offer. So what if we really own that and, and share that? And I think we can be much more likely to thrive if we do that. But it's, it's a scary thing. It's a big leap to, to know ourselves and, and own that and present that to the world, not what we think we want to have other people see. Oh, but that one in terms of knowing yourself, I, I think is an important one because there's no point to some extent um, having a mask up because you, you're not to some extent showing your true self, but then at times you won't be happy with how you are portraying yourself to others. So you're only, in my opinion, hurting yourself in that instance. Yeah, it becomes like avoidance. So if we wear the mask, we don't get a chance to see. We can handle showing up with our real self and that other people might like it, but even if they might like it more and even if they don't, we can also handle that. Um, but as I always share on my podcast, no matter what though, I have such a respect for however we've learned to cope because these things don't come out of thin air. We, it's, we learn to adapt and and really try and be resilient no matter what cards we've been dealt. And so even if we're doing something that's not so great for us now in our life, I, I usually understand that as a psychologist, it developed out of some need to help get through some tough time and it became a coping skill. But that very thing can be what later actually makes it hard for us to have a, you know, to thrive or to feel really good in our life. So Amber, let me ask you this question then. Do you think that this generation now uh, has less of coping skills than, say, the previous generation? I I don't necessarily think that – I don't think of it that way. What I think is that when I see I – see, you know, I get referrals for anxiety within kids or, you know, they have perfectionism or depression if they're not doing well in school or there's, you know, bullying or pressure. I do see each of those individual – kids really being able to find a way to, to be resilient and thrive. So I feel like no matter what, at, at their heart, I think kids and teens really are resilient and can do incredible things. So I don't think it's like this generation has less. I think though that my worry is with this fast pace as this world is with things like Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, I do hear a lot of young clients talking about that pressure. Like there's sometimes group text messages that become a whole grade level and they're nervous to not look at their phone because then they'll be left out and it's causing so much anxiety and stress. And so I think the pressure to fit in, the pressure to, to always stay tuned into everything going on on social media, Twitter, it's just so much. So I'm, I'm worried that they're going to need even greater coping skills because there is less time outside. There is maybe less you know, engagement in sports and things like this, if we get sucked in or use our phones to, to, you know, it's like this immediate comfort to feel like you're in control and kind of go to that. So to push ourselves to kind of look up and get engaged with kids around or in physical activity, it might be a, a bit more of a hurdle, but I hope that we can all support these kids and recognize these issues are still there and, and we've got to really look at how to help them adapt and be resilient with everything going on with social media and pressure there. So would you say that they're, well, gadgets, bit phone, tablet, well, laptop, desktop is a certain, certain extent, um, safety blanket then? Mm-hmm. 
Um, sorry, you cut out a bit. Can you say that again? How far back do you want me to go? Uh, you said that the phone and tablet or what? Uh, be it a phone, tablet, laptop, or desktop, do you think that that's their safety blanket? I think it can be for kids and grownups. I mean, it's just right there if we need an escape. But it was interesting because I, 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 I walked out um, a tea shop in LA and I saw a young man sitting by himself on the phone. I was thinking, I think, I think if, with everything, there's, there's pros, and, pros and cons and things to look out for. And I thought, I wonder if this helps someone who maybe doesn't have a lot of connections or friends, but wants to get out in the world, I think that there is still a stigma. If you just sit there and have coffee or tea by yourself, people are like, what is going on? Are they waiting to meet someone? Why aren't they <laughs> on their phone? Like what? They're just sitting there drinking their coffee or tea. And so I saw this kid drinking his coffee and he had his phone. I thought, I wonder if this is a nice way for him to get out and feel like this is this is okay. You know, people aren't going to be like, oh, he's by himself. It's like, you've got your phone with you. So in some ways, I wonder if it helps people get out and do things where they might otherwise be nervous to be alone. They don't feel alone or like they'll be judged as much. Unfortunately, that's what they're worried about. But I do also think if, especially with, with anxiety disorders, you know, typically with anxiety, you're up against avoidance. So whether it's social anxiety or agoraphobia, I think when we're afraid to be out there, and we can immerse ourselves in a world that exists on our phone, again, it might be one more hurdle to overcome because it is um, immediate and it can be reinforcing very quickly and you know, addictive to just be constantly on our screens. Um, so finding that balance can be even more challenging. Oh, but I'm hopeful. What, I'm hopeful for, for what, good apps. <laughs> for once, my phone's not actually that close. It's, it's, it's not actually <laughs> bothering me. But I think that I can... I can see where you're coming from well i i well if you use facebook as probably the example did that comment i think i was first sent the invite ooh, i think my freshman year of university and if it oh, hadn't wow. been for that it's like well what would i have been doing at those particular times i was on my computer where would i have been instead so you're thinking mm-hmm. well, that's probably the same for well People, people in their thirties and late twenties now. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you thinking, well, what, what, what would have they been doing if this application didn't exist? Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting question. Yeah, like I was saying, though, I, I hope there's some good apps coming out to help people. So I am hoping if we are on our phone, maybe it can be a gateway to self care in that way with the great like mindfulness and anxiety. There's Worry Watch. There's so many great apps to help with those issues. I'm hoping if you're already on there, we can also kind of adapt and help people, you know, on something they're used to using. But I just, that book I was telling you about off the air, um, the productivity project, I think he's saying if you turn off your TV and you stop watching, you would get back six and a half years of your life, something like that. So it's like, oh my gosh, that's, that's kind of astounding. You know, so as you say, what would we be doing if we weren't on our phones? Like, well, if we weren't watching TV, would, do we want six and a half years back? Goodness. I'm surprised by that number. I thought it'd be a lot less. Yeah, I was kind of floored when I heard that. So I definitely enjoy Netflix and <laughs> certain things. I thought, goodness, that's something to be aware of. But then I would say it's not actual, or you could term it, live television people are watching. It's Netflix, yeah, Amazon Prime, 
Yes. Uh, well, well, we've got similar, like, what, what you have as TiVo, we've got Sky Plus, or okay. whatever brand it may be over here. Most mm-hmm. of the time, it's more prominent in my household. Mm-hmm. That would be the case. You were watching it secondhand, obviously recorded, well, be it the next day, uh, the week later, because it's there recorded on the box. So you're not actually... Well, you don't have you don't have to have that option now to sit there and watch one channel. Mm-hmm. You can do what I think. Well, I think they brought out one. What was it you can record six oh uh, shows and watch a seventh? You're thinking, well, people are never going to leave this. this <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it's always there for you. So I think that is we we can find what we like, and again, it's balanced with. Do we use this as an escape to avoid certain things we'd really prefer to be doing, or is it just a nice thing to enjoy? You know, everything in moderation. <laughs> I think the television, in my opinion, is probably a little bit escapism because, be it depending on what kind of shows you watch. Mm-hmm. Mm, if we say the reality ones, well, you don't really have to think because it's <laughs> it's mundane television. Right. Um, maybe the like documentaries is trying to expand on your knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, and then obviously entertainment is obviously to entertain and, and and things like that. And obviously sport is would fit depending on what spectrum you want it, it mm-hmm. to be. But, and be whether you liked it or or not. So it's, mm-hmm. I think it's a difficult one. Well, you could say the same probably about internet. Is it? Yeah, I think everything can be, you know, a nice escape reading or TV, music, whatever it is. But, you know, I think, yeah, like six and a half years, that was just a wake up call for me. Six and a half years of your life. Well, you won't get it back anyway. <laughs> so. I think if you maybe go one step further than that and say, well, there's no point, uh, dwell in on it it's happened you're not gonna go you can't go back in time mm-hmm. so it's, it's probably looking well what can i do going forward to to maybe be more productive with that time yeah i think balance and always like you said to kind of stop and just notice what things are it's it's empowering to just really slow down and focus and say what am i doing in my life what's working what's not what it what is my what's my goal here? What's my values that I want to keep moving toward? And, and am I in alignment with that? And then if not, we can, you know, change course. But if we kind of just keep going through the motions or going from one thing to the next, we can suddenly slip more and more distant away from what it is that maybe we actually set out to do or what's important. So that those moments to pause and really reflect, I think are really essential to help us feel good in our own lives. Cause it's, it's so different for each of us, what we're, what we're moving toward or what, what we do value. I think I was put a good point across. It's in terms of we are, and I don't know who told me this, you're kind of brought up to go through schooling, obviously to be to a certain extent told what to do, then you get a job and then et cetera, et cetera, and then obviously you die. Whereas maybe you should question things along the way and then you could maybe down a different path. Whereas, I think people are told, well, this is kind of 
how society work culture is, you must fit on this straight and narrow and you can't deviate from it. So, well, everybody's not like that. So it's, <laughs> you need to kind of find your own path. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I started off wanting to be a, a singer in LA and then kind of like went toward academia. My, you know, it wasn't something modeled for me very much. My dad didn't go past eighth grade. Um, and then my mom was, you know, a wise woman, but she just chose not to go to college. So like to go for my doctor, it was this kind of strange foreign path for me that I was, I didn't know what to do. I just found mentors are really important, really good role models and mentors. But I think if we keep checking in with ourselves and trusting our gut and finding what kind of lights us up, we can figure out what our path is. But yeah, many of us, I think can also feel like this is what's you know, expected. So this is where we go. And for some people, they might find that really fulfilling and that is wonderful for them. And some don't, if you, you know, like you said, if you say, what do I want to do? And is this still the path I want to be on? But it takes slowing down and knowing ourselves and reflecting and trusting our intuition, trusting our gut and saying, does this really feel right to me? Well, mine's a very difficult one to that because before I started in this teaching role, we were asked in the summer, um, how did they coin it? Um, what is your ideal job? It's like, well, I already had mine, so it's it's, it's not gonna, yeah. so it's 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 not it's not looking to by doing this course, am I gonna <laughs> get it again? It's like, well, uh, what is my ideal job? Uh, unfortunately, I've already had it. Whereas with you guys in the room, I guess you've got something to look forward to. I think I could probably re- reflect and look at it a different way. I can maybe be of value to somebody else mm-hmm. I think because I've got to that certain age in life and I get asked well a little bit less now but over the last couple of weeks oh, are you enjoying the, your role it's like well I'm in my 30s I don't have a choice even if I hated it I still got to do it it's it's you get to that stage where even if you don't like your job it pays the bills so I kind of mm-hmm. go with that I was like well it's not, it's not, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a fulfilling job or anything like that. It's like, I don't hate it. But if if it was to those kind of negative perspectives, it's not the end of the world. It's, you still got to, uh, it doesn't matter. Even if people are in that kind of situation, you kind of get on with it because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it keeps you on the straight and narrow and keeps, and pays the bill and keeps a roof over your head. So it's, Mm-hmm. You do what you got to do. Ideally, yes, you would like to do a job that you love, mm-hmm. but that doesn't exist. That's not. That's kind of an ultimate reality. It doesn't exist for everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting. It reminds me of, um, you know, have you heard of the book uh, "Man's Search for Meaning" by no. Viktor Frankl? I think so. Yeah, it's an intense read, <laughs> but it's it's all about just kind of wherever you are, can you, can you find peace in that? Can you find something that inspires you? Can you find something beautiful that moves you? And I mean, his, his journey though was intense and it's a very dark story, but um, you know, I think again, it's about what we find meaningful and, and what works for you. And, And like you're saying, there's a big point there that that's not always for many, many people. That's just not, an option to just love what you do. I mean, that's kind of probably why I wanted to be a rock star when I was younger. It's like, ah, that's like the one thing you're just traveling and you get to sing and how amazing. 
And yeah, that didn't happen. But I do. From the flip side of that, I'm aware all the stuff that things that they don't you don't see. Whereas I think from an athlete perspective, people mm-hmm. say, "Oh, it's wonderful to compete." Oh athletes. yeah, uh-huh. like yeah, you see two to three <laughs> yeah. weeks of a four year cycle. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think I when I've gone into schools years and years ago to like do inspirational talks, people said, "Oh." And I thought when this was before, I was going to retire. And people say, oh, why, why are you going to do it? Why don't you carry on towards what at the time would have been Rio? Um, it's like, and I jokingly said to one of them, oh, I'll do it if you do it. And they, they agreed. <laughs> like, a bit naive. I obviously know what's co- I know what would be coming out of my head. You don't. So it's yeah. like, uh, whereas I know what the slog's going to be like, be it. Well, this is not actually that bad a winter yet. It was not worse, not winter yet. But going forwards, this mm-hmm. is not a great time of the year. Be it when it's dark and dingy and you've got to get up. So mm-hmm. whereas they don't realise that. They see it, well, when we're, well, when an athlete's at their prime, that's what you peak towards. You see it at the best. Absolutely. Yeah, and so much behind the scenes work and commitment. It's your life though. Yeah. I did not (laughs) immerse myself that intensely. I definitely got a taste of things trying to just write songs and record. Actually, I think one of the things that I did that was out there was like for a nonprofit singing and narrating a book to um, help children get along. Um, It was really interesting. So I loved that. That was like a a passion project that I got to do with a nonprofit, but I don't think I did the whole I did not do the full on like singer thing in LA besides recording a couple times some songs that I wrote. And I thought, I think school's a better fit for me. Well, I was, I was, I was probably the same. I wasn't, I'm not going to say totally academic. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, a bad student to say that, but because uh, I think, even when I've gone into, say, well, our colleges, so say, what would it be? Between high school and, oh, would it be like junior college? I'm speaking to kids. I've horrified the teachers and the admin side of things because I said to the pupils, um, how did I word it? I'm not the best student. And I would say I put more importance on my, my uh, um, oh, not my academics, my... Um, Athletic prowess, more so. However, I ended it with, I also did actually go to tertiary education, so I'm, I am fair, I'm fairly bright to a certain extent. It's, it's, I put more precedent on the, on the athletics. So I could have been probably a better student in the classroom. And I, I kind of agree with my parents now because even the sporty kids in my high school were very academic, whereas I was happy to be above average, which I think looking back on my class ranking, wasn't the biggest class. I think I was in like the middle of the pack with, and that's, I graduate with about three points, two, three point three, a great point average. So it's not, not bad. Mm-hmm. But, and that's middle of the road so I, I don't know how I, I'm going to say maybe like 40 kids would have been in that bracket so it's, <laughs> so it's yes I could have pushed myself a bit better academically but 
Yeah. And we all don't, we, we don't all fit into the same hole. I mean, there's some of us are great with academia summer and I wasn't, I just worked, I just worked hard. I used to be a cocktail waitress, like studying math equations on my napkins when it was slow because I was not gifted with that at all. So I didn't consider myself, you know, um, academically like a superstar at all. I just was willing to keep going for it. And I think we, you know, everyone has strengths and weaknesses, but to assume that we all need to be the same with our strengths and weaknesses is, you know, it's kind of asinine. Well, I, I had aspirations of doing, going up to P, PhD and it was my master's said, no, no, that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> yeah. I remember taking the GRE to get into graduate school. I was like, oh, I just got pretty much the lowest scaled score you could possibly get in <laughs> math. So I just spent a whole summer like studying and relearning everything that with my own math anxiety had previously avoided and just like let fly out the window. So it was a, it was a intense little mental boot camp just to kind of get my score up enough. So I was like, phew, I didn't have to well, face that again till dissertation. It's a bit similar with me going back into it. Well, you could t- term it education, but from the, being on the, the staff side of things, uh, we had to tick boxes because uh, I did all my, well, obviously my schooling overseas from the UK because I don't have the qualifications as what they have over here, I've got to take boxes. You're thinking, my tutor understood it because he knows me for, he knows me for a few years. He's like, well, you got a university degree. It's like, well, obviously I should be able to get, well, what is high school qualifications? A bit, I'm a bit lower. You're thinking, oh, he just said to me, I'll just take boxes. Okay, I'll put my head down and do it. And... No, I've learned. I've learned. Well, relearned stuff. I've forgotten, <laughs> and uh, and obviously you're doing well, high school maths and it be English or whatever. You're going back to school up so that you may still know it, but it's being taught a different way. So you're thinking, okay, we'll do it your way. And at times there's been stuff. Well, I've learned. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, I still remember that, but it's. Because <laughs> I think the kids, they question, well, I won't need this in life. It's like, mm-hmm. yes, you will. <laughs> well, you need, you need, ma- you need ma- maths for every, everyday chores. Mm-hmm. Um, I think English, and we touched upon it a little bit, obviously, from the, the more so the social media perspective, I'd say mm-hmm. probably more for communication because, well, if we touch upon just t- texting as one thing, <laughs> well, that's not a language. It's right. not we can't do a, a paper with emojis. So. <laughs> well, not yet. Right. Maybe <laughs> that would be a hit class. <laughs> I might try that just for fun. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we really do. I think we need certain things and, you know, it's, we're, we're not skilled in everything, but I do believe in how if you apply yourself and you just practice and you push and you persevere. I mean, my hat is off. I have such a huge... I have a crush on perseverance. I mean, the things it can do for you. I mean, I knew I knew I was going to struggle with that math for, for a long time. But I think when we're willing to commit ourselves to that and just accept where we are, that we might not be so great, then I think we have that permission to move about and do what we need to to help work on that. You know, So it's kind of the first step again is that awareness. Well, it's it's been willing to take that help as well. It's it's mm-hmm. you're always going to learn from somebody. 
Oh, for sure. Whatever skill that might be. I'm being open-minded. And I think maybe it's a generalization a little bit. I think maybe society, well, especially at the the moment, it's not like that. I've got this kind of ideology I'm not going to listen to anybody. The other, the other side of the argument, no matter what, it, even if it is right. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard. It, it, that reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Gottmans. They're the John and Julie Gottman, the kind of couple relationship experts. And he actually has a, a background in mathematics, but they've been studying couples for decades. And they, he reaches out to every, I mean, I saw him talk and he's sitting there reading like a different book every single day and learning. And he found these um, techniques for handling international conflicts that he uses to help couples when they're like gridlocked. And I was like, that's brilliant. And so he, he taught us in the seminars how to help the partners um, really find three things at least that they can see in their partner that is something similar that is reflected in themselves. Um, when they just feel like, oh, I, I don't get you. You're so different. I don't know how you can be like this. And, and just distancing themselves completely away. He's like, we're actually more similar and more connected than you think. And so I just thought, well, that's so amazing how he applied international conflict <laughs> resolution to, to warring couples. Well, it's probably looking at it from a you you you're applying what is in this essence a bigger picture into probably a smaller detail. So it's technically it is a conflict. So it, mm-hmm. it's not the same <laughs> thing. So it's it, right. it works there. It should work on a smaller scale. And it, it actually can, it does. I think it can help soften us and feel connected instead of like we're just like in opposing corners fighting for ourselves when we recognize ourself and our partner. Well, so I think that's, I think it's only human nature. You're going to find, well, you, I think it's easier for to find flaws in people mm-hmm. because it's, well, it's one way to up your, get yourself on another level to somebody else. So you mm-hmm. can the calls and people, I think yeah. people say, oh, it's not going to be bullying. It's like, well, there is. It's just called something else. It could be banter. It could be people mm-hmm. joking around. It's still somebody, it's still at the end of the day, you, you're belittling somebody else. That's, well, and kind of be it, if it's uh, you as an individual or as a group, it's at the, it's at the, not the benefit, at the expense of somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a really interesting book called The Happiness Hypothesis that talks about exactly what you're saying with how we see so many flaws in other people so quickly and it's so hard to see our own weakness or times that we gossip or aren't treating others well. And he's he, even in the book, he talks about kind of the way that gossip is important in some ways in society because then you know you're accountable and people are watching and they'll say things if you're not doing good for the community. So there was actually like a pro-social healthy side of gossip, but at the same time it can tend to run amok and get out of control. And then when that goes exactly like you said to belittling or, you know, it's not constructive or to bullying, it's, it's, it's terrible, but it was really interesting. I've never heard of gossip in a positive way, but he talks about that. I thought, yeah, for the pro-social reasons, that's a really interesting perspective, but we really have to be careful. And and pairing that with social media, it's so easy. Um, 
Oh, and it's uh, this really great school psychologist, uh, Kelly Celeste recently sent me this app and she said, look at this. This is, this helps people. They install it. And it's like, before you go and send that text message, if it recognizes something like foul that you're going to say, it actually pops up a screen that says, are you sure you want to send this? And, um, you should be able to do that from your conscience. That would be, that is the goal, but it's actually, they've done studies. It helps, it helps people, um, actually stop and not send. They've done kind of studies and looked at how often that helps intervene. So it's it's interesting, but I think things are so accessible with social media. So when you have gossip on that, especially because there's this sense of, I think, anonymity, um, you know, it, it can feel like you can even do things or say things more that you might not ever say in person. Oh, the keyboard warriors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So. But I think you raised a good point there. I had a teammate in volleyball. He was very bad. Well, not, not going to belittle people, but he wouldn't think before he'd post something on social media. Mm. It's, I don't know what the, the actual example would be, but whatever he posts, it come back to the head coach and say, well, why have you put that out there? Mm. He was, he was either the second youngest or the youngest. You're thinking, okay, he's the youngest. It's like, well, he's not thinking, but, but I think we kind of, the ones who were living with him full time, it's like, you need to think before you send it or put it out there. Cause once it's out there, you can't get it. You can't, even if you delete it, it's still there. So it's, whereas I think, with my industry and I think more so now that I've come kind of gone on the podcast, we look at it as, is it going to add value? If mm-hmm. the answer is no, don't post it. So I think it's, that's, that's probably a good example. To, that's a great to rule. People. It's, 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 I think it's more important to do that because it's like, well, if it's not going to give, well, even if it's one person, if it's not going to help them, mm-hmm. don't need to put it. Don't need to put it out there, and that's probably an easy way of going about things. Yeah, I almost. I mean, personally, I feel like the way that things have taken off with Facebook, Twitter, etc. I feel like it just took off, and we all got swept in, and 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 in some ways, we're starting to realize it's it's potential for really adding value to people's lives and helping. Um, I mean, it's already doing that. I think in um, in many ways with the way I'm seeing people connect and especially like on Twitter and form groups around ending stigma. I think that's amazing and so important. So I love that. Um, But I think there's also ways that we haven't even tapped into its full potential yet. And, you know, as a psychologist watching for these studies, like there was one study where um, college students with test anxiety got supportive messages on Facebook before their test. And they compared that to a group that didn't. And that, that group that received those Facebook support messages fared so much better uh, with their ability to take that test and feel more confident and less anxious and more calm. So, I, I mean, I think there's so much where if we can, you know, realize this is something here to stay and it's only going to grow, how can we keep using it to connect people and to, I mean, 
some of the neatest things I've seen now that I'm on Twitter more is like the messages that come out from people in different countries, especially if they're in an area where they don't usually have as much access to mental health services and seeing that other people are like them and seeing the resources online and knowing they're not alone and to connect, I think has been one of the most moving and powerful things. So in that way, I feel like it's, it's off to a stellar start. So I can only imagine where it's going to go. I think you raise a good point in terms of, the, the, say, for an exam perspective. I think if I say use mine as the example, I think more so my family. We've never been the greatest when it's come time to for exams. Mm-hmm. More, um, I wouldn't put it for me. I wouldn't put it from from my own personal experience. I wouldn't put it down to anxiety. It's just I don't. I, you could take coping skills aren't the greatest. But I don't like that environment. But whereas if you put me in a practical environment, I'll thrive. So t- technically it's the same thing because it is a testing environment. But I think because mm-hmm. it's uh, the practical side of things is more hands-on, there's mm-hmm. a little bit more scope. Whereas with the uh, probably the theory side of things, you could coin it. Well, you're number crunching, really. You're trying to pass a test. You're trying to pass an exam, and this is where my family, my mother and aunt, have that disagreement because my mother didn't do university education, but my aunt did, and they argue, well, what does which prepares you best for the working environment? And obviously, you are. Um, my aunt didn't like it because she got passed up for promotion, but mum said, well, that person's got more experience than you, so they know the job inside and out. So I think I can see it from both sides of the argument. Yeah, it's given me a greater and broader knowledge base to work from. However, it's only a piece of paper. I've got no, no experience to go with it. So I kind of the flip. So what I kind of installed to the public the kids now is obviously focus on your academics mm-hmm. more so than maybe your athletics. And it's the complete polar opposites than what I would have said a few years ago. Yeah, uh, and then if you are happen to be good at sport, utilize it as a, like a vehicle mm-hmm. to get your academics sorted. So I think be it soccer in this, this country, if you can get to the U S to get your academics sorted, do it because there you go there's a free ride and mm-hmm. do it from that perspective and if you can utilize your sport to better yourself later in life I'd say go for it mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting I think the way that and I've heard you talk a bit in your podcast too about kind of when you were younger and first entering sports and what that you know did for you and you know I think well-rounded <laughs> balance is so important and you know, knowing what we're, what we struggle and what our strengths are with everything, academia, academia, and, you know, getting out there if you are an athlete and, and you can get that well-rounded experience. But yeah, for some, I mean, it's, it's hard. I don't think it's like, it's one or the other. If you get that piece of paper, it's probably, you know, hard earned and gave you that knowledge. And then life can give you so much knowledge and experience. I feel like the times I just moved around gave me <laughs> You know, I moved around so much that gave me a really intense um, experience just understanding, even though I was younger, if I was a kid, just human behavior and people and 
getting along and fitting in and, and all these interesting things. And then you kind of learn textbook things later, but it's all valuable. It's all so important. And, you know, life experiences. I mean, that's what the books are written about is the things we do in our lives. So I my hat's off to all that. That's, that's sometimes the, the most valuable experience we can get. Well, it's utilized. I, I would I would say to people listening, even though, say it be at high school level or junior college. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying it's not a bad thing going well, or a good thing going to university. It does prepare you mm-hmm. for um, well, life skills and all honesty straight away because it's. Um, well, I was up. I was fortunate enough to move away from home before I started, so I, all those. Uh, well, chores I took for granted that I didn't do at home. <laughs> yeah. I soon learned that. I soon, soon learned that not to know how to do that. And people would ask me, "Why did you learn to cook?" Well, <laughs> it was, and I kind of talk. I, I talked about this today, but not in that kind of sphere. But it was either learn how to cook or starve. So I was like, "Well, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn because I don't want to die." <laughs> No, it's it's an extreme, mm-hmm. but it's 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 taught me a skill. And I don't dis- I don't dislike cooking, but I'd rather somebody else do it. But <laughs> I, I, I quite happily cook now. Whereas, mm-hmm. what is it now? Well, over a decade ago, no chance. You wouldn't find me in the kitchen. Yeah. Even though my my mom would show me well, like the basic one, bolognese. You know, all the easy ones. <laughs> be prepared for things that nah I don't I don't I don't need this skill and obviously it's one wow. you need yep it does it throws you into a whole new world I think every time we're willing to kind of push ourselves and grow it's it's amazing it's like we can learn these huge lessons about ourselves and and specific skills to get through that and then as we're growing and evolving we learn about ourselves and it's you know learning curve for each thing like, you know, podcast, this is new, learning curve, steep for me. <laughs> you know, just figuring out the tech and everything we do. I will confess, though, of cooking, like, I'm pretty good at toast. <laughs> and then other things, you know, I'm not so wonderful with cooking. But, you know, like I said, we all have our strengths. Let's um, try, try that. Well, my, my family would say I have a unique cooking style, but I think it's one. I've <laughs> Mine's <learned>. interesting. <laughs> I've learned from uni. It's, I think I chuck things together. Uh-huh. and see what happens mm-hmm. and sometimes it works and obviously you keep that and if it doesn't <laughs> work well, I won't say it tastes bad but if it doesn't taste yeah I always get oh thank you do it again. yeah thank you that was interesting thanks for thanks for that I'm like oh boy I know what interesting means when it comes to cooking so <laughs> I can make amazing guacamole luckily in California we have lots of fabulous avocados but besides that yeah you probably you know it's like oh it's your birthday I'm not gonna cook for you so <laughs> you know that way you're, spared, you're spared from my cooking happy birthday let's go somewhere yeah not a skill I will not have a podcast on cooking anytime soon it's it's, it's a difficult one but it's I think it's gone probably full circle with cooking and, and, and whatnot. And I think more within my field, obviously the word diet has gone completely away mm. from what the actual word means. You're thinking mm-hmm. when people say, oh, I'm on a diet, it's like, no, you're not. You're, you're taking out a food group or whatever, <laughs> or whatever this fat, new fat is. 
you're not having a you're not eat, you're not having a diet because your diet would be what what you eat well whatever how many meals you have a day and it's balanced that is the diet so it's mm-hmm. I think obviously the mindset of that word is being very much uh, commercialized manipulated to suit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting even in the way language can affect us too with we, we start, like you said, we get messages about what we should be eating or what's the newest fad or we were talking about that off there a little bit ago. And even the way we talk to kids, you know, stop when you're full has always been interesting to me, like that you're supposed to eat until you get to this place. If we're lucky enough to have access to food like that, where you stop when you're full, which is like your body, it takes like what, a half hour to digest and really know. But if you stop and you're full in that moment, like you've gone way beyond instead of like stop when you're not hungry anymore. Um, the way that, and then I think, and also like we were talking about when we kind of in school, speaking of academics, you know, we tuning into our bodies and, you know, connecting our head to our bodies. A lot of times we're just kind of thinking up there and, you know, the analogy I sometimes share is like, we've got like this balloon and we're holding the string and our head is that balloon way up there. And I'll never forget when I used to run mindfulness groups at the VA for um, the combat veterans, you know, we would do mindfulness in a big group for the PTSD groups. And afterwards we would say, so, you know, what was that like? Any feedback? And everyone would raise their hand and keep sharing. Like the constant theme was, I'm hungry. And I didn't realize, or gosh, you know, like I have to go to the bathroom. I should have gone before I came in here. It's like, we don't sometimes tune in into, you know, our bodies as much. We're really kind of get up in our head. And I think so much of health, both physically and mentally, emotionally, all of that requires, again, slowing down, being aware and being tuned into ourselves. And especially if you have anxiety or something else like that, it is really hard to slow down, feel what your body's feeling. We actually prefer to avoid and just keep going to the next moment. So that can be really tough when it comes to knowing how to take care of ourselves and know our cues from our own bodies. Well, you need to listen to it because it's, it's, it all, I think I may be more in tune to it because from the sporting background, you, you have to deal with more mounts and that's probably generalization a little bit, but soreness, tight muscles, or, um, be it that, not doubt, but the dread of having to get up when you don't want to. So it's, I think mm-hmm. it's, you are very much in tune with it because it's like, well, mm-hmm. I don't feel 100% today, but I need to do it anyway because such and such somewhere in the world is doing it. So I think that's a driving force behind it. And, well, you are popping pills at, at, at times. So that's probably not a good thing, but... Mm-hmm. And I think I've become more knowledgeable to be able to do it from a an organic standpoint, be it using I don't know turmeric and and the like, mm-hmm. instead of using anti-inflammatory medication, which mm-hmm. would have been the case in the past. Whereas mm-hmm. I think you you are when you are sore, you kind of think, well, I, I need to take this to kind of keep going and, and, and going from there. But I think, I think I'm from a, from more so probably from a training perspective, if you know that you aren't hundred percent, and I'm talking more so in the gym now, 
you will back off because it's like, well, it's pointless trying to lift what I lifted. I don't know, say it, what we did today, Thursday. Um, what I lifted on Tuesday was, I don't know, 10 kilos more. But I, the the warm-up set is awful. So, you know, straight away it's <laughs> going to be one of those days and it's like, it's no point going, I don't know, 80% and going half ass. You might as well do it at 70% and do it 100% or as close to that as possible. Mm-hmm. Get a good enough session and kind of go again. Mm-hmm. Well, for the next one, I'll be back to normal and, and kind of go from there. That's I think that's very much reading into your body and going from there. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's I mean, that goes so in line with what I try and promote with Go Friend Yourself, which is like accepting not only who you are, but where you're at at that moment. And I think sometimes there's a fear that if we if we accept all of ourselves and how we're feeling and doing in the moment, that we're just going to let ourselves off the hook. And that's a common fear I hear with clients, especially if there's issues with like perfectionism, which, you know, as you probably know, I call myself a recovering perfectionist. Um, and so it's like, well, I mean, that could have gone such a different way. If you think about it, if you go to the gym and you're going to lift and, you know, you're trying to get this workout at exactly what you had on Tuesday and you know your body's just not there. I mean, you could walk away feeling really deflated or ashamed or be really hard on yourself. Or like I talk about shooting on yourself, S-H-O-U-L-D-I-N-G. Like I should be able to do this and I can't believe I didn't and have this negative view of ourselves, this negative perception. I think it's so much more, I mean, the way you would probably talk to a student or someone you're coaching, you wouldn't. I don't think you'd be like, yeah, you suck. You should just quit right now. Or I can't believe that you're not not able to do this. You'd probably say, well, do what you can, but do that at 100% and accept where you are. I think you'd have to look at that person, that person's personality traits and see, can they take, (laughs) well, positive criticism uh, better than others. So it's, and we talked about that more from my perspective. Yes. Yeah, that was interesting. I don't know. I don't. I think maybe the ones that I coach mm-hmm. possibly could take some of that, whereas some mm-hmm. of the kids in school probably not. Mm-hmm. So you think? Mm-hmm. So you've got to. I think it's it's very much to the, each person and take each person as they come. So you can't say, well, this is this year group. Oh, they're right. all going to be the same. So because mm-hmm. I think what when was this? Day was this? I think it was Tuesday, and I was helping out the French teacher. And uh, well, he wasn't bad; he's not a bad student, but he was, he was playing up to a certain extent. And I was speaking with him. He said, "I don't like this teacher. He, he, I'm not getting along with him. I like you as a, as a teacher." He's thinking, "Okay, <laughs> but you might not like that teacher." I don't like everybody that I meet. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's probably like 11, 12 years old. So like, well, he's going <laughs> to outburst when he's not happy or is confrontational. Whereas mm-hmm. I think, and I spoke talked to the teacher afterwards, it's like, well, yeah, we would do that, but we would internalize that frustration as adults. And mm-hmm. so we won't always um, outlay what we're actually thinking to the individual that we don't like. So I said, well, yeah, you like me, but you still need to respect him as as the authority within the classroom. Because he was saying, oh, you're nice. <laughs> but I didn't say this to him. I've said it to other members of the staff. 
It's like, yeah, I might be nice, but if you do cross me, you don't want to see that side, don't we? Because mm. I can be, well, it doesn't happen that often, but if I, if you see the bad side of me, you've definitely done something wrong. Hmm. Yeah, it is interesting what you're saying too, though, about how as adults we internalize and as kids they might sometimes just say like, oh, I don't like you or I'm not comfortable with you or I like you better. And so, you know, but I think we can lose some of that because, um, you know, when we learn as adults what happens, what does happen between that time as a kid and then becoming an adult. And I think it's important to learn, you know, social cues and you don't just say, hey, I don't like you. But at the same time, unfortunately, a lot of you know, us can go through tough experiences where we are getting the message that things like um, not liking someone or feeling anger or sadness are not okay. Um, and so as adults, we can have a hard time and internalize everything and lose, lose touch with an ability to kind of say when we are upset with someone and be assertive. Like, I think we can get sucked into going to this aggressive place or a passive place, but to really as an adult know our anger and sadness and voice it in a healthy way um, can be very tricky for many of us. Oh, I think for me, it's, it's a weird one. I think. Do tell. <laughs> if you do know me, if I'm not happy with something, you can read it in my body language. If you know, me. if you, mm-hmm. if you obviously know the cues, whereas I won't, always say something but you can read that mm-hmm. be it. I can feel it I don't know what would be the example um, I wasn't in a very good place with the basketball last season mm-hmm. but I didn't internalize well you could say it was depression to a certain, to a certain but not that severe because I wasn't very happy I didn't want to go training Hmm. Didn't want to play games. Um, Last motivation. Um, I won't say that. I would say I was just frustrated with not playing. So it's like, well, why should I go uh, training? So it's it's more that. What's the point? It, I see. It's it's, the, it's kind of one of those. Uh-huh. Whereas I think I'd had, well, not bad depression, but as in when you start going within yourself because mm-hmm. it would have been, oh God, what would I have been? Probably early pre, not like early teens, late preteen, because with the Belgian system, if you don't pass your exams, you got to retake them in the summer. So it was mm-hmm. that. So I was having to revise. So I wasn't going out. So it's that kind of uh, uh-huh. in cl- well, in close in close situation in terms of well, you haven't got that social interaction. So it's more that kind of depression. So I could see it last year well I don't want that to manifest again so mm. I will speak to about it, speak to my family about it mm. and I can kind of tell with my body language I wasn't happy but I'm at least talking about it and I think actually some of the questions I asked it would have been about that time on the show are in are in the episodes so it's it's me mm. asking questions for people uh-huh. actually for me, me at the right. time. So when I listen to the answers, it's like, mm. yep, he's got a valid point. This is what I'm not doing. Uh-huh. And, and I've, come out, I've come out the other side and, and I kind of got out there, okay, gone down a division, playing more, but 
I think as an athlete, I've also gone away and done the things I needed to to get better. So it's it's mm-hmm. kind of well. I've heard what the guests have had to say in relation to my sport. Yes, they've got a valid point. So now let's go on. You need to go and implement that into yourself. Yeah. Wow. And just again, thank you for being honest about, you know, we all, like I share, I have generalized anxiety and um, that's something I've worked on throughout my life. And you're sharing, you've got some depression and everyone has something. And so I think this is one of those ways that I think, you know, social media and podcasts can be so powerful with helping people understand, like, this does not mean you're weak. This does not mean, you know, you're the only one. This is, we all struggle with something. And I think that's huge because, you know, what, like they say, um, being alone is like a depression pill, not an antidepressant. And so for you to be courageous and reach out and know yourself, know your symptoms, say, okay, am I getting to this place where I have a, you know, loss of, interest or enjoyment or I'm not feeling driven or, you know, I'm feeling down and, and low energy or what's going on. And just notice as this is starting to pop up in your life again and to tell your family, that's huge. I mean, that takes so much courage and then you can get that support and feedback and check in and, and have someone there with you. I mean, it's, we need people, we need each other, especially when we're feeling depressed or struggling with something, that's when we need each other most. And unfortunately, because of stigma still and other things, that's when we can hide ourselves most because we feel like we can feel like if we internalize that message, we're not supposed to. And if we struggle, we just don't tell anyone and we can feel shame and all sorts of terrible things when really there's no shame in being a human who struggles like everyone does. So I just I can't thank you enough as a psychologist and as a human being for having a podcast and being an athlete and sharing these very real things about being a human. I think that's just so incredible. So thank you. Well, I think for me personally, I've always been like that. I'd be very, I won't say open book completely, but if I did have a an issue that I needed resolving or wanted to get something off my chest, I'd always mm-hmm. pick up the phone and speak to a family member anyway. And mm-hmm. Okay listening to them now and listening to kind of some of the well heartache they had to endure when I was an athlete thinking okay it's not the greatest mm. kind of passing the buck to you now over the phone mm. but it helped it helped me and there's not much they can do over the phone be it wherever it was because it's like well what do you expect me to do now I can't I can't help I can't help you with resolve the problem but I think it helped me at the time to well, it, well, it lifts that weight to a certain extent because yeah, you're not alone. You're, you're not you. You haven't like you say. You're not alone. I've got well that particular problem off my chest. I feel a little bit easier. It's it's not mm-hmm. it's not overwhelming me. Mm-hmm. It's out in the open. Oh, I can go again now and, and kind of go from there. But it's it's been very. I've always I've always spoken to my family about it. Or whatever it may be, uh, and I pass it, pass it on to the the kids now and say, well, it's no point internal, especially especially that one. Mm-hmm. Don't internalize it because it's only going to get worse. Yeah, oh, that's so great that you you help teach that too to kids. It's just such an important message, and yeah, I think that it, 
you know, being, I don't know if you heard the episode I did, uh, Wired for Connection with that study they did about perception of geographical slant and the steepness of a hill. And I was like, huh? But it turned out to be this really fascinating study where they showed that um, on college campuses, they would stop people walking together and say, how steep is this hill? Um, even if the person they were walking with stood three feet away from them. And then they asked people who are walking by themselves and the people who walk by themselves perceived the steepness of the hill is like significantly greater than it actually was, but also um, to a, a greater extent than even the people who were paired with someone. So they, they found that just being with someone can make things seem more manageable. And you'd probably love that study because it actually looked at kind of like your physical capability um, based on how tired you were that day, how, um, if were you carrying a weighted backpack, et cetera. So that physically you could alter someone's perception of the hill based on how your body was feeling. So they thought, I wonder if this applies to, um, you know, social things like, you know, being with someone, is this, is that applicable? And they did find it was. So even the people that just imagined being with someone, they replicated the study. Even people that just imagined being with a supportive person in their life and then went out and looked at this hill also perceived that hill as less steep. So you would think therefore more manageable to climb since as you know, our body's always saying, oh, I need to reserve energy. And you know, we, we naturally perceive hills steeper than they are. So our body can, can do that. But it's amazing how just knowing someone is there with you can help us feel like we are actually more capable and able of doing something difficult, even if they're not saying anything. So I think, like you said, when you call someone, sometimes they're like, well, what, I don't know exactly what to do or I don't think we need to, to know or say the right thing. And I think that worry can get in the way of being there to support people sometimes. Whereas just knowing someone is there and you're not alone is huge. And our brain is wired for connection and does feel way better and way more capable even just knowing someone's with us, with our experience, even if they're not physically there. Well, so that comes back to that social inclusion because I think what was, they had a program on over here, I think a couple of weeks ago, um, and they had an experiment isolating people thinking, I wouldn't sign up to do that show, no chance. <laughs> so I think it was a bit like, um, you know, like a sleeping test where they're filming the, the individual. Whereas this, mm-hmm. was, I don't think there's, a, I think they had a bed in there. And I think that was it. You're thinking, well, oh, gosh, that that's... person's going to go loopy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, I, I think that there's huge you know, impacts on isolation. They've looked at that with, you know, the ethics of that, even in prisons, like here, if you're, you know, isolated and, and the way that that's used as a punishment and what that does to our brains that are wired for a connection. It's just talk about taking a toll. So that's, you know, it's, I'll be, I'll be interested to see where this goes with when we are isolated physically from people in our daily lives, but only connected through phones and things like that. Um, you know, our programs or social media, what that impact is too. I think we're, we're just going to be discovering all of this, how it plays out now with the way technology is. Too. Well, I think I see it a little bit firsthand. It's um, uh, language skills aren't the greatest, um, but that could be lack of effort. That could be loads, loads of different factors. Um, mm-hmm. I think some of them, they're very ma- very mathematical and think they think in a different way in in terms of very much the more you know like doers as in if they can build it 
as opposed to what would be the other one? It's more kinesthetic as opposed to visual or like auditory. So it's like, well, it's no point. Sh- it's not it's no point shunning that because that's mm-hmm. is a form of learning. So it's like, well, absolutely, just have to t- t- ah, change your way of teaching. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, what if we adapt to how? everyone does function and pull the best out in that. But that's, that takes a lot more, you know, focus and energy and individualized. I mean, that's getting into the, the whole narrative of individualized education versus kind of, I mean, that's a, <laughs> it's, doable, a whole that. it's easy. It's enough, but, the, but then the difficulty with that is money because mm-hmm. some schools can Resources. implement it and some can't. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Absolutely. So my last question for you, Amber, before we wrap up the episode. Sure. If you had to summarize this show we've done today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Hmm. I would say it's knowing yourself and accepting where you are and using, I think that's what's inspired me most hearing you talk and using that to be in our life and really thrive. And I know separately, we've also, well, part of it, we've talked about social media too and mental health and connection and reaching out. So if we were to pair those two together in a very long-winded sentence, I would say it would be um, being in touch with both who we are and accepting where we are while we know what's important to us and engaging with the community, social media, people around us to help support us in moving toward what we value and uh, also to get through tough times. So once again, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast. So I'm totally honored to be a guest and I really appreciate talking to you. I can't wait to have you on my podcast as well. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.